Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. You know, when I heard that Michael Steele might be running for governor of Maryland, I actually started worrying that he, you know, he might, you know, dial it down, become more cautious, uh, become a little bit less entertaining. And then he goes on this show and he's asked about Jim <laughs> Jordan not remembering or saying he's not quite sure when he talked to the president of the United States on January 6th. And this is what Michael Steele had to say. I can tell you the time, the place, the date of every conversation I've had with every president of this country, period. Going back to Bill Clinton, I can tell you where I was. I can tell you what was said. This son of a bitch is sitting up here acting like, well, I, I don't know if it was before. I don't know if it was after. Right. Oh, Lord, and Jesus, I don't remember. I got to look at my notes. You know, bitch, what time you called the president, and you know what you said. Yeah. Oh, my God, yes. You're a grown-ass man. Stop acting like you just, you, you 10 years old, and you got caught masturbating by your mama. Stop it. Oh, Okay, um, so of course we had to have Michael Steele on to talk about that. That last reference seemed kind of specific, Michael. <laughs> 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 Just a little bit. Yeah, you know, Charlie, first off, it's always good to be with yeah, you, brother, good. every time. Uh, good. good morning, Mr. Chairman. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I am I am the yin to your yang. I got it. Um, no, I just had it, man. I, I just can't, you know, I can't tolerate it anymore. And I don't think um, the American people should tolerate it anymore from, from these fake pseudo Republicans, conservatives who, who just out there, uh, you know, grifting and pretending. And you, you just got it. The way you do the smackdown on this is the smackdown. You just can't, you just can't wish, wish it away. And, and so in that moment, after listening to Jim Jordan act the way he acts, I mean, of all, of all the things, Charlie, Look, you and I know if you get a phone call that says, please hold, yeah, the White right. House is calling. Yeah. <laughs> Trust you, me. You know. Even, remember. Even, even if you talk, I talk to him all the time. I mean, it's just right. like we're on the phone. It's like texting. What up? What? what no. The, you talk to the president on a day like January 6th. You're going to remember it. You are. You're going to remember. As you're absent, that's the point. Especially on January 6th, you are going to remember your conversations that day. And they do, which is why he and others are now in panic because with this January 6th commission um, in full swing, two very well-regarded Republicans now serving on that commission within um, Adam Kinzinger and Liz mm -hmm. Cheney. Um, subpoenas are coming. They are. And phone records will be exposed and conversations will be asked about. And Jim Jordan and his ilk know that they're, they are sitting literally on the tip of that political spear, and it doesn't feel good. You know, what was interesting about the interview, and I didn't play a, a, a clip of it, he's talking with a local reporter, and he sort of stumbles. He's clearly not as, uh, as fluent as he often is uh, in the answering of the question. And it raised the, you know, it was, you know, again, it was like, well, you know, blah, 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 uh, what he would be like as a witness. Do you think 
we of course don't know, but if he is subpoenaed, do you think that Jim Jordan will show up? Because the reason I ask this is, you know, knowing Jim Jordan's, you know, penchant for, you know, theater and circus and turning everything that he is in into a circus, that he might relish the moment to testify and to, to show, you know, what a superstar he is. On the other hand, Jim Jordan has never really been subjected to the kind of questioning he would get, including the fact right. that it would be under oath. So what do you well, think is going to happen? Perjury is a bitch. Yeah, <laughs> so, it, it, it is. Yeah. So how do you how do you avoid that? You don't show up. I suspect any uh, former Trump official, uh, certainly any member of the Freedom Caucus like Jim Jordan, Gosar, and others who may be subpoenaed, um, will do their damnedest to uh, resist and not show up. Uh, this is where the test for the Democrats will come uh, almost immediately. If you do not have it in you to execute on your effort, then don't commit to the effort. In other words, don't issue a subpoena unless you uh, plan to, you know, don't plan to send out you know, officers to collect <laughs> the individual that you have subpoenaed that towards are not issued for their immediate uh, arrest and uh, removal to the committee hearing room. Um, if you're not prepared to do that, then Democrats need to stand down bloviating about, you know, we have subpoena power. Uh, we saw what happened over the the last two years of the Trump administration um, where, um, you know, administration officials just refused to, to do anything and the Justice Department gave them cover. Well, guess what? That Justice Department no longer exists. Um, and so now the Justice Department has said, oh, dude, <laughs> you can have his tax records. You can have Trump's tax records. You can, you know, you know, it's, so it's a very different environment now. And unless you're prepared to use the full authority that is granted to you under the under the rules of the committee of the House, um, don't 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 get our hopes up here. So I know you've been asked, you and I have both been asked a, you know, this, this same question over and over again, but it's, it, it's worth raising. We wake up this morning and find out that a fourth uh, police officer has now committed suicide, a fourth officer yeah. who was, had been involved in uh, the, the Capitol insurrection. His name is uh, Kyle DeFreitag, um, who is the fourth who died by suicide. Uh and, and, I, and I think you know, somebody tweeted out just the reminder that, you know, a lot of these officers had spent hours, literally hours in medieval style, hand-to-hand -hand combat, that nothing in their training would have prepared them for that. So the question that gets asked is, well, something like this, will it change minds? Will it start to peel off Republicans who are increasingly into denial, into retconning uh, what happened on January 6th? The reason I'm, I'm asking it this way is that my default answer is no. Have you been paying attention? Nothing right. changes people's minds. But are you, you tend to be somewhat more hopeful than I am, I'm thinking. You're, you're more of an optimist than I am, Michael. So do you think that the accumulated evidence, you know, hearing that Donald Trump is on the phone with the Department of Justice saying you should just declare it a corrupt election and I'll do the rest. You know, the fact that you have, you know, police officers dying, does it have an effect on a Republican Party that claimed until five minutes ago that Blue Lives Matter? 
Not on the Republican Party yeah. per se, but what, but where it has an effect. And I think where you see uh, any change coming will be among rank and file citizens, everyday folks who are paying attention to this, who do want answers to the question, what happened uh, on January 6th? Why did it happen? Who was involved? And I think why you see um, uh, a little bit more nervousness coming from the Jim Jordans and the Kevin McCarthy's of the world is that the 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 landmass that they're standing on politically is shrinking because the, both the polling and the the inclination of the American people is towards more information, more facts more exposure to the truth. Um, and, and so my my bet is that, and again, this really hinges on how the Democrats navigate this space so that what is at once perceived to be political because of the way the commission was uh, comprised um, is in fact not so much political as it is really about the truth. If they can navigate that successfully, they can bring Americans along. Those Americans who are brought along um, will begin to change the political dynamic for the GOP in terms of how they respond. Right now, they're holding on to a base that is in lock with them. There's no doubt about that. But again, I keep telling folks, that's a very small number relative to the rest of us. And, And so I think that the rest of us will have a say ultimately in how this narrative plays out around this commission and and whose uh, petard gets uh, <laughs> you mm. know skewered in this process because there 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 are some folks who are exposed here. There's no doubt about that. They know it. Um, you you may not want to show for the subpoena, but we can get your records, phone records. We can get emails. There are a whole lot of ways that information gets gotten, and you know. Then, then your your bravado about not showing up, or to your point, trying to bring a clown show to a serious uh, commission's efforts um, gets exposed, and the people are turned off by it. So that's that's mm-hmm. my hope in how this plays out, because like every American, I want to know what happened, and I want to know to the extent that. Um, some of these characters uh, played a role, you know, and, and then you've got the Josh Hollies of the world who are just pretenders to the throne who are just trying to to try to grift off of it, you know, power sh- sign and then realize, oh, damn, I gave a power sign to the wrong group. Um, but but the reality of it is there were there were actors who were much more um, uh, heinous in their in their uh, efforts and intent. And I think that that, at the end of the day, is going to be a, a tough spot for Kevin McCarthy, the the you know the, the speaker wannabe. Yeah, you know, it's beginning to occur to me and work with me on this, Michael, that uh, you know that Kevin McCarthy may not actually be all that smart. <laughs> I, I, I mean, really, I I just I, 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 I just like no wow. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was, I, you know, was listening to the debate going back and forth about his stupid joke about hitting Nancy Pelosi oh, with, gosh, with the yes. mountain. It was always a joke, and it's like, okay, you know, there, there's yeah, a pattern. There's a pattern. Jokes about beating up a woman. Well, uh, who, somebody, who, somebody, who, somebody who has no no better material, and and this is the problem with Kevin McCarthy. It keeps coming. There's a pattern in practice. Okay, now speaking of the internal dynamic in the Republican Party, I think what's happening in Arizona is increasingly interesting. Um, you know, the Arizona Republican. Senate uh, subpoenaing, you know, you know, pushing that that uh, bogus audit, bringing in the cyber ninjas. 
some of those senators now have peeled off, uh, don't want to be part of it. And then yesterday, the Republican-dominated Board of Supervisors in Maricopa, uh, Maricopa County essentially told the Republican senators to go stuff it when they came up with another ridiculous uh, subpoena. And this is what we read you from their letter. This is from the chairman of the Board of Supervisors, a Republican named Jack Sellers, who wrote, it is now August of 2021. The election of November 2020 is over. If you haven't figured out that the election in Maricopa County was free, fair and accurate yet, I'm not sure you will. (laughs) <laughs> the board has real work to do and little time to entertain. Here comes this adventure in Never Neverland. Yes. Please finish whatever it is you are doing and release whatever it is you are going to release. So at least in Arizona, which is a swing state, you can see that even rep- elected Republicans are going, I'm, we're just done with this bullshit. I mean, really, yeah. we're done. You guys are crazy. I'm going to call you out as crazy. Well, see, and that, Charlie, goes to the point I was making earlier in our conversation about where my hope lies, that as these things play themselves out and the exposure is there and people see it for what it really is, you know, so the plank that's in the eyes of Republicans and and those who kind of line up with this 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 dumbass narrative on the big lie suddenly begin to realize Okay, I'm really beginning to look stupid now by standing where I'm standing, um, and and so that's what that's what that letter is saying. You're you've made fools of us. Okay, so just finish up what you're doing so we can all kind of get past this. Um, and so that's for me is the sweet spot here. That at the end of all of this, people do know the difference between an election that was free, fair. Uh, and and um, legitimate, and one that was not, uh, and 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 so when you cannot produce that evidence after sixty federal court tries, one Supreme Court try, and a Justice Department looking at it and going, "There's no there there," and now with an audit on top of all of that, at the end of the day, people aren't that stupid. I mean, they're just like, "I'm sorry, I cannot, I cannot." stand with you on this any longer. So you're seeing these Republicans down peel off. They're looking at their own reelection if they're if they're elected uh, in, in an elected office, um, whether it's, a, you know, one of the election officials or some other uh, position. Uh, and because they know the voters are going to hold somebody accountable. I mean, this this the you know, the state is now what, nine million in the hole mm-hmm. on, on all of this. Um, and then you've got places in Georgia, like Georgia and Pennsylvania, you know, looking to do the same thing. At some point, you're going to see that that effort sort of fail on its own as well, because people aren't stupid. Well, some people are stupid. And yeah, well, so this, this, this is the this is the flip side, because, OK, so that letter came out saying, you know, we're not, we're not going to do this never never land stuff anymore. An elected state senator, a state senator in Arizona named Wendy Rogers, put out a series of tweets saying, I would have arrested all those people already if I have the power to do so. I vote to arrest, arrest and put them in solitary. And she's serious about the solitary thing. I would like to know if we have enough solitary confinement cells in Arizona available for the entire Maricopa Board of Supervisors and the execs at the fraud machine company, which I assume is the voting machine company, we are going to need a lot. <clears throat> so, 
okay, this is weapons grade nutbaggery, you know, coming from these senators. But I, I just the the extreme the extreme sort of tone. No, this you know, lock them up. We've we've heard this before, right, Michael? I mean, you know, yeah. lock them up. But this weird, um, uh, you know, the extremism that's out there as well. And this no, woman is not. A- this woman is not backing off. She's not deleting her tweets. She's doubling down. She's tweeting out pictures of these elected Republican county supervisors behind jail, bar, you know, behind bars and everything. I mean, so the crazy is loud down there as well. Right. And, and so here's here's the reality for someone like that. She's sitting in a position where she probably looks at her her Senate district and says that she's safe and she probably mm-hmm, has a lot mm-hmm. of people who are banging drums with her. Right. Um, and, and 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 that's so she she feels protected in that sense. And this goes to a broader uh, response that I think communities need to have, even though. You, she may not represent you um, as a state senator. She does represent the state. And, and so we all have a vested interest in, in the, the kind of crazy that comes out of her, out of her mouth and, and her failure to hold, uh, to be accountable for the action. This woman is calling for locking people up, mm-hmm. putting them in solitary confinement. So I think the citizens of Maricopa County or, or, or even across the state have an interest in taking her down because she is not the kind of representative that the state needs. So there, there is that. And how that plays itself out remains to be seen. But the other side of it is what these idiots, and she is an idiot. She is, she is, she is the epitome of idiocy because what she doesn't realize is that everything she's advocating for at some point that could come back to bite her. And let's say some rogue Democrats in the future, um, because everything's changing. That, you know, the power that they have, the Republicans have in Maricopa County and Arizona ain't lasting forever. I mean, the Democrats thought that was the case until it wasn't. They held the House for 40 years until Newt changed the changed the game in 94 and opened up a whole different kind of Pandora's box. Right. So the reality for for these people is this stuff comes back. It comes back around. And when it does, what will you do then? Because everybody that you want looking for to help you, their ass has been locked up and put in solitary confinement already. So, you know, it's just it, it just it, it's just the way our politics is and, and why our founders were so concerned about political parties, why they were so concerned about, you know, whether or not we could keep this republic was this idea that it can be easily corrupted. And once you open up that corruption uh, where the democracy doesn't matter anymore, only your personal interests, that's a slope we don't want to be on. And that's why it's, that's why voices like yours out there and others are, are just declaring call to remind us to that. And I, I think it's important. And, and so, yeah, she may win this moment with her little tweet. But at the end of the day, she's not allowed to win the day. You, and I you, think hope, you, you, you hope not. I mean, one of the concerns. Yeah, I mean, one of the concerns that I have is the, these ideas that would have been unthinkable, you know, yesterday, are now being norm- normalized, and the sort of the the temptation of authoritarianism is uh, is is very very real. And I, I wrote a piece today for my newsletter. It's on the the, the Bulwark site. Uh, people hear me talk about this, you'll think I'm exaggerating until you read it, the, the sort of the passion for, you know, we need to have a dictator. 
we have a publication called American Greatness, which is, you know, uber Trumpy that has a right. piece called the the Salazar option, which is like we should be more like Portugal. That's what would make America great. So that the fascist adjacent dictator of Portugal, Portugal becomes the model. Michael Anton from Claremont Institute had a, uh, a podcast where they talked about how we needed to have an American Caesar and how it would work. Uh. And then, Michael, I think the, the thing that, that alarms me the most and I think is going to have the longest term implications, and it's really serious, is that Tucker Carlson right now is over in Hungary sucking up to the authoritarian strongman of Hungary. Uh, right wing uh, leader Viktor Orban and talking about what's going on in, in Hungary. If people like Tucker Carlson and Fox News begin normalizing right wing authoritarianism around the world, that does move the so-called Overton window of what is acceptable in our politics. And, it I, does. And, I, and I do and I do think we need to take that seriously. I, I know I agree with you 100%. And you know, Tuckums as as our friend Joy Reed likes to call him, uh you know, Tuckums is is a big part of the problem. But but Tuckums doesn't know hungry from being hungry. Um <laughs> and 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 that's that's the problem. He he has no gravitas in this space. He's he's grifting politically. He's trying to, you know, elevate his his uh, ratings. Um, and he, at the end of the day, doesn't give a damn. I, I know this firsthand, having dealt with Tucker in the past, of what motivates motivates him. Um, some some uh, episodes when I was chairman of the RNC with with such a numbnut. But you're right. It's he, it's it's dangerous. He is dangerous, and it is particularly dangerous when stupid people have power or, or perceived power. Yeah. And and the reality of it is um, that it makes it even more important for all of us to push back against it. Um, you know, hell, I, my thing is, you know, since you're hungry, why don't we just shut down your passport? You can't get back. <laughs> so <laughs> keep your ass there for a while. Since you since you like since you like the you know the dictator program so much, why don't you try living under it for a few years and then let us know how you feel. Um, but, you know, the, the, you, you raise a big point, Charlie, about more broadly of what this means for this country right now and what kind of America do we want. There's a reason, ladies and gentlemen, that George Washington said no to a third term and a fourth term and a fifth term. There's a reason why he said no. Um, there's a reason why uh, Roosevelt was cut off. Uh, from having a third term. I mean, where, where people are like, okay, we just need to dial this back a little bit. So there, you know, a fourth term. So there, there, there are checks and balances in our system for sure. But there, there's something even bigger than that. And that is how we look at the leadership of this country and why it's designed the way it is. Um, and why it's survived a lot of rough patches. Uh, in the past and the present. Um, and, and I think if we turn a blind eye to that, then we do open ourselves up to something far worse. Hey, let's, uh, let's take a quick break here because I, I want to ask uh, Michael Steele more about him, about his own personal plans, but also about uh, the kinds of people that are now, that are now attracted to our politics. Uh, we'll be back in a moment. 
Hey, Charlie Sykes here. Uh, just a quick reminder, if you sign up for Bulwark Plus, you will have access to our morning newsletters to JVL's Triad, uh, as well as our whole suite of podcasts. This one will remain free, but if you want to listen to the secret podcast or uh, participate in our live streams uh, or others like the Next Level podcast, uh, please consider joining Bulwark Plus. We're back with Michael Steele, the former chairman of the Republican National Committee, well-known pundit, perhaps future governor of the state of Maryland. So, Michael, as I was sitting down, you know, thinking about what I wanted to talk to you about this morning, I'm reading the stories about the chairman of the Oklahoma Republican Party, you know, comparing vaccinations to, um, you know, making Jews wear yellow stars during the Holocaust, uh, reading Ron Johnson's latest bizarre maunderings, this story out of, uh, out of out of Arizona. And it raised the question, you know, what sort of people are attracted to politics these days? And I don't just mean the elected officials. And I know that as a former chairman of Republican National Committee, you know what I'm talking about. Right. I'm talking about the activist base, the people that 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 want to be on the central committees of the Oklahoma State Republican Party, the Arizona Republican Party. Who are these people? And is it changing, do you think? Because my sense is there's a class of, of super zealots who now are being drawn into party activist politics that's making everything we're talking about worse. It's accelerating it. Well, that, that class of superzealots have always been there, but, mm-hmm. but the system had, had appropriate checks on them. There were others, there were others who, who served on those central committees, who served as national committee man and woman, yeah. um, chairman of the party, uh, who were uh, appropriate checks. There was an agreed upon um, uh, ethos. There was an agreed upon um, view of, of what republicanism uh, is, um, what conservatism is. Uh, you are more than familiar with, with, um, with all of that, like I am. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you remove the check, which is basically what what began um, long, even before I became national chairman with the Tea Party. This process had begun beneath the surface. There was this this sort of hankering about not getting our way. Um, you know, having this view of a changing America that was antithetical to the very idea of what America espoused to be. In other words, you know. We are a pluralistic society. These people don't like pluralism. We are an open society. These people don't like openness. We have a Judeo-Christian uh, ethic that recognizes that everybody gets to play. Uh, everybody's religious beliefs, everybody's religious tenets are treated uh, equally and have value. That's that's not that's not something that they subscribe to. So you have this sort of beneath the surface has always been there. And I say probably going back to the early 1960s, the late 1950s in a reaction to some of this, uh, some of these changes uh, brought home when Nixon decided, hey, I, I'll take all those white, angry Southern men uh, who are pissed off at Johnson embracing civil rights. And, you, you know, we can win national elections with them. Um, and that that corrupt seed has germinated and has spawned what we see today. So this has been this has been in play for a while. We just became the vessel for a lot of this 
this anger, when you look at where the party was and where the party is, what the party talked about and pushed forward versus what it's doing now, you can see there's a 180 degree shift away from those things like, uh, the, you know, our alliances, our relationship right. with our partners around the world, uh, our views on issues like the environment and the immigration, et cetera, have all become very xenophobic, very myopic, um, and very much antithetical to the ideal of America. Um, because when they say, you know, I want to take my country back, back to what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what I want to know because, you know, we want to make America great again. For who? <laughs> because. Well, okay. That, that, I mean, that gets, I mean, that, that gets to the kind of the heart of it because I, I was sort of under the impression at, at one point, maybe a decade or so ago, that, that the Republican Party was headed in a very different direction than the one that it's taken, that it was going to come to grips with its, um, so we say, you know, racially complicated. Yeah, that it was going to turn against this, that it did understand that it had a lot of baggage from the 1960s, from the Southern strategy, and that there was a serious discussion among conservatives and among Republicans. Okay, how are we going to deal with racial problems? What are our ideas? Um, what do what did we get wrong? What did we ignore? Right now, I have the feeling, and I'm interested to get your your take on this, that that whole discussion is shut down. I mean, I understand there's a lot of legitimate criticisms of critical right. race theory. I think there are people who are illiberal, who are intolerant, who are just way over the top. But it now seems as if it's become forbidden for conservatives, even like David French, to say, hey, listen, we actually do have some serious issues to deal with. You know, How are we going to fr- confront this legacy of racism, which is real? How are we going to think about American history, which is deep, you know, which has you no know, deep roots of, of racial prejudice, et cetera, not just not just slavery? And it, it feels like we have we are back to 1957 level of discussion on the right when it comes to race. And I know you've been very outspoken on this. Yeah, no, you you just, you, you've you summed that up very expertly. Uh, and, you know, our friend David French, I, I read his stuff mm-hmm. uh, religiously. He's just so, so on point about the nexus between um, our faith and our politics and how that gets played out. Um, and, and sort of this, this deconstruction of conservatism into something that is, is just unrecognizable, uh, today by any standard. Um, and, and I think a lot of this has to do with this, this, the Republicans, as much as they like to go after Democrats and, playing the victim card. You know, they always, Democrats always like to play, play up all these victims. We're looking at the victims running, running the asylum right now. We're looking at this sort of victim mentality where poor me, everything's set against me. Um, you know, they're taking my, you know, taking our jobs. Uh, they're, you know, they're, they're destroying my American dream. All this, all this other stuff. So the, the idea of what the individual could accomplish and then pass on has been supplanted by this sense of new victimhood um, where Republicans are probably quicker to cancel someone out than Democrats uh, are alleged to to do. Um, and we see that, uh, you know, you just turn on Fox and you'll see cancel culture uh, run amok in so many ways. Um, so we've sort of adapted all of these these qualities. I like to put it this way. 
um, when I looked at the presidency of Donald Trump, that presidency exemplified, represented and executed in a way that the Democrats alleged that that Joe that um, hmm. Barack Obama's administration would have been all the things they claim Barack Obama would do. Republicans did hmm. under Trump. But- Whether it was limitation of rights, whether it was, you know, yeah, it wasn't the Second Amendment. It was just voting. (laughs) Right. Uh, So you you see you see this sort of um, uh, this imagery that's being created. And it really is a Dorian Gray kind of mirror uh, or portrait of the Republican Party, which has this, you know, on the outside um, may look a certain way. But inside, there's something much more gnarly and destructive going on. And it's something I addressed when I was chairman. It was a reason why I gave the speech declaring that the Southern strategy was over, that we would no longer be that party beholden to this idea that the only way we we could win votes is by canceling out uh, the votes of black and brown Americans. Um, So there is there is this this reality now that's set in that the lane that you and I travel in has been narrowed. There's no doubt about that. Um, and, and what is taking over, what has grown is this sort of, um, this sort of victimization perspective, this sort of where, you know, we're going to make them pay, you know, we got to get the Democrats, um, and just lost sight of what it means to be a political party. Well, even more specifically, it seems as if, based on their polling and in the internal memos of, of you know Republicans running for office, then twenty twenty two, they've decided that one of their the Republicans have decided one of their magic bullets is to run against critical race theory, but also to make the mantra "America is not a racist country" central to their appeal. Um, I cannot recall um, since the sixties really when the race card was so overt. Now, people are going to push back and say it's always been there. But I mean, really, very much, you know, yeah. out, out, out front. And so this has become now the line, the 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 applause line from everyone, from uh, Nikki Haley to, uh, to Tim Scott, saying America is not a racist country. So how do you answer that question? What, you know, and, and, and you know, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have, have, uh, said, listen, we don't think that America is a racist country, but, and then they talk about the legacy and the need to do things about to, to confront it. But this seems to be uh, something that Republicans have decided is a winning issue for them. Yeah, it is. A, it, they think it is a winning issue uh, for them. And my question to, to Nikki and to Tim, especially, um, is, you know, you don't believe it. I mean, you're not going to sit there and tell me, you know, yeah, the country is not a racist country, but there are a whole lot of people inside of it who are. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, and so you can't walk away from that 400 year history. Uh, no matter how much you claim something doesn't necessarily make it absolutely true. Number one. Number two, um, the people who are jawboning about critical race theory, honest to God, Charlie, they don't even know what the hell it is. No, they don't. I've asked, I've, I've gotten into discussions with people and I say, okay, well, tell me, well, what is critical race theory? And they hum it hum it hum it hum. I think you don't even know what the hell you're talking about. I said, this has been around for over 40 years. This is a high level intellectual 
you know, theoretical discussion in law schools and and high end grad schools. This is not something that your sixth grader is having put in front of them in a classroom, but yet they want to run around and act as if it is. And it's it's consistent with the Dr. Seuss theology. You know, it's consistent with the, oh, my God, if, you know, when when the government shows up and knocks on your door to ask if you've been vaccinated and, and would offer you the opportunity to get a vaccine, they're really there to take away your Bible. You know, it, it's just this this sort of really sort of dumbed down. Was, yeah, that was exactly the phrase <laughs> I was going to use. Word for word, Mr. Steele. Dumbed, dumbed down. down expression because there is no there. You've got nothing else to say to the American people except that. We are a party without a platform. We cannot tell you what we believe unless we check in with Donald Trump first. We cannot express a value system because it's connecting to no values. We have none. We've given that over to Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump. We've given that over to Proud Boys and the KKK. We've given all of that over. So the only thing we are left with is, oh, critical race theory is bad and America is not a racist country. That's all we have left to say. And they think, you know, Kevin McCarthy thinks he will be the next speaker of the House on that. Mitch McConnell yes. thinks he gets back the Senate on that. And Donald Trump thinks whether he or his protege will be the next president of the United States on that. And I'd like to think, Charlie, that America is a little bit wiser than that, that, you know, we're not going to fall into this race trap um, and, and, and sort of play this play this out this way where like we saw in 2020 where Donald Trump goes oh guess what white women in suburban america they're coming for they're you coming they're, for they're you. moving into your neighborhood i'm like dude i already live in suburbia what the hell my <laughs> i think white folks know i'm here right i'm just yeah. not not that i'm just showing up i'm already here uh we hang out at the giant um and as we saw in 2018 on immigration oh caravans coming across the border and americans looked at that and go well there are no caravans oh and by the way my neighbor's black and we you know we live in suburbia so yeah, my my favorite my favorite part of that was um you know when he when he's talking about uh, you know the suburban white women need to fear what was coming that the scariest black man he could come up with was Cory Booker. Right. <laughs> Who has Cor- the prettiest Corey. eyes? You look at Cory's eyes and go, oh yeah, this guy's not a threat. No, he's cool. He's good. You know, okay. on, seriously? So, so Michael, you have been living your best life. You've been enjoying your your, your career as a, as a pundit and an activist. Why, why would you want to get back into politics? Why do you want to be the governor of Maryland? <laughs> I mean, really? <laughs> that, that, I, yeah, I ask myself that question every day. Well, that's what this period is that I'm in right now. We, you you know, we're we're evaluating, you know, the the ups and downs and the and the the political seas here in the state of Maryland. Maryland is Maryland is, you know, at least on paper, a, a blue state. Um, I, I've always contended it's a, probably a little bit more purple than than a lot of than certainly some conservatives think and certainly than uh, more progressives uh, would believe. 
Um, but, you know, the political dynamics are very, very different. We are potentially in a 2006 environment where the Republican brand is a tough sell to a lot of voters, even though they may like you personally and, and appreciate where you are. Uh, I've, I've tripped up on that in the past and don't want to trip on that again. Um, so we want to we want to look at that. But the, I think the other big motivator is. Uh, my sense is in a post-COVID world, states like Maryland are, are going to need to get navigate carefully how you build back the economy, how you re-engage um, uh, in, in a regional sense, how, you're, how you uh, stand up your, your academic systems from you know, pre-K through uh, university systems. Um, all of these things will be very, very important, and and they will matter. And you need leadership that's not that's not knee jerkish, that's just not you know putting his fingers up to the wind uh, to try to figure out which direction, but that is ready to uh, move very uh, strongly in a direction that will stabilize the economy, uh, reestablish confidence in our educational systems, um, our healthcare systems. Um, and our political systems, quite frankly, uh, in a way that that shows that, you know, uh, there's some leaders out there that are willing to walk away from partisanship for the for well, the purposes what, of providing leadership and service to the people. Well, that's what, what, what I wanted to ask you about. For people who are, are un, unfamiliar, um, Michael's a former lieutenant governor of the state of Maryland. The current governor of the state of Maryland is, in fact, a Republican. You ran for the United States Senate as a Republican, a former yeah. chairman of the Republican National Committee. My guess is that the Michael Steele who might run next year would be very different, would <laughs> be very different than the Michael Steele who was lieutenant governor, Senate candidate, RNC chairman. So how will, how would you no. articulate that, that, no, that, that how, how you know the, the, the new Michael Steele the revised Michael Steele no the, the, the what, same the Michael Steele no, okay. no uh, I, I, I'm, I, I'm true to myself I, I don't change because the environment I'm in has changed you I, I for me there, there there's a bedrock um, uh, to stand on and as my mama told me when I was a young kid if you're not comfortable with the person you're looking at in the mirror then sit down if, mm-hmm. if you because you, you, you you're not ready for the world, you're not ready to do anything. If you can't if you cannot define that person looking back at you um, and be comfortable with that definition, then don't. So, I you know, um, I, I'm a conservative. I have I have uh, ideas and principles that that matter. Uh, I, you know, I, I was a seminarian, so that's a very big part of uh, how I governed when I was lieutenant governor, how I would govern as a governor. I bring, I bring the gospel to my service. I recognize there are poor people who need help and government plays a role in that. It's not the only, uh, entity that has a role, but it plays a role. Um, there's, you know, there's a safety net for a reason. I'm not afraid to have, engage and, and, and be a part of tough conversations um, because I feel comfortable with what I believe and what I value. I value people. I value service. Um, and what I see in a lot of political leaders today is they value neither of those things. Mm-hmm. And they're all about, you know, whether or not I can get reelected, whether or not I can raise the money and whether or not I can amass power unto myself. Um, those are, those are the folks that should not be in public service. And my hope is that Marylanders, um, and in campaigns, uh, you know, like the, the one in Maryland around the country that voters 
um, you know, care and are concerned enough about the kind of leadership that they put in place uh, that is going to be there to, you know, not just say, oh, I'm going to fight for you, but as actually recognizing what that fight is about. Um, and yeah, and prepared to make tough decisions. So I don't, I don't intend to change. Um, you know, my friends would tell you if you, if you met Michael Steele 10 years ago and had a conversation on issue X, you have that conversation today. Um, you're pretty much going to get the same conversation. Yeah. There will be some, you know, there are nuances, you know, your eyes, you open, you learn a little bit Mm -hmm. more by listening and learning, um, and, uh, and appreciating that, um, uh, like all things, uh, circumstances and situations change and you need to adapt to that. But the core has to be, has to be solid. The core has to be solid. You, you have to, you have to see leadership as a way to make good things happen, um, for, for, for well, someone other than yourself. Well, Michael, just put on the flak jacket before you leave the house. That's all I can say. Oh, I, no, I do. Already. <laughs> Tell me about it already. I mean, it's, 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 it's silly. The, I mean, I'm already hearing, you know, the, you know, the Trumpers here who hate me because they don't hate me because, um, you know, I, I suddenly became a pro-choice Republican um, or, you know, I, you know, I think we should ban all guns or anything. that's those are no, my views. No, I'm no, like no. Liz Cheney. Liz Cheney mm-hmm. is one of the most conservative persons in Congress. And what's what is her sin? She stood up to Donald Trump. That's the only sin. That's the only sin. That's her in, sin. In Michael Steele, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Appreciate it very much. As I said in my invitation, I wanted to get you back in before you became too too important to talk to us. No, anymore. no, dude, uh, never. I'm never, never, never <laughs> too important to hang out with my man, Charlie. Uh, I, I appreciate you, brother, in ways, um, you know, you don't, you don't really know because no, I, I see the difference you make out there. Um, and it's just, it's not a lot of us um, that, that bang that not. drum to remind us, you know, of, of the good that still can be done in this country and, and having a rational discussion um, uh, with patriots and, and pragmatists who are, who are ready to, to stand with democracy. And you're, you've been leading that charge. So anytime. Hey. I'm there. Thank you very, very much. Um, and, and back at you, Michael Steele. And thank everybody for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow. And we'll do this all over again.